During the Christmas period, I, uh, Eunice and I bought a 2000 puzzle piece for our daughter and um, our nephew who was visiting us from Zambia. Uh, we wanted them to put together these puzzle pieces. They're like in the box and there are lots of pieces in there and there are 2000 pieces and, and I think it looks like an animal. And uh, it was my wife's idea to get a 2000 one, right? And so, okay, look, have a go and see if you can uh, be occupied with that over Christmas. Um, we thought actually that they would relish the challenge, having a 2000 piece puzzle piece to put together. Uh, Abigail, after all, has worked with the 500 one, and I thought this is good step up to do that. Uh, but, <laughs> but immediately, as Brother Grant is shaking his head, I agree with you. Immediately, they agree with you. They had no interest in doing it. And the problem was just the number, the sheer number, just hearing that. 2,000 puzzle pieces. It just put them off. Uh, they could not imagine finishing it. Uh, even though they both like doing puzzles, it's just the number put them off. Now, of course, the puzzle is now back in the box and uh, perhaps waiting for the next Christmas in the Lord's will. As I thought about that, uh, it occurred to me that as human beings, we have a love and hurt relationship with puzzling situations in our lives. Sometimes we thrive on puzzles, especially if it's in our realm of interest and we have some ability and we can see that we can, something that we can get around. And sometimes we hate it. <laughs> we hate surprises. We hate being surprised by things, especially in the area of human relationships. Uh, none of us want bad surprises. Uh, we want certainty. We want to know our life with people is going to work out. We want our spouses. We want our children. We want our friends. We want even bosses at work to be predictable. Certainty. That's the watchword, isn't it? Uh, even in the economy, businesses cannot plan for the long term without certainty. We want certainty. And the same is true for our relationship with Jesus. We want him to act in the way we expect him to act. And when Jesus doesn't act as we expect, we lose confidence in him. Why is God doing this? Why is he not doing that? Right? We lose confidence because we forget that we are sinners. Jesus is holy. He's, a, he's God. Right? He's holy. He's the holy one of Israel. We forget that he's not like us. No, it's not just his holiness. We forget that Jesus is infinite. We are finite. So on the one hand, because Jesus is holy, we can't read him properly because we are sinners. We can't always read him properly. We need the word of God to guide us, to understand the mind of Christ. So that's why we, we forget that. And so we get surprised when he acts different from what we expect. But also Jesus is infinite. He's omniscient in his knowledge. He's uh, he, 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 there's no boundary to his knowledge. On the other hand, we are finite beings. So Jesus always knows things that we don't know. And we forget that. We forget that his ways are not our ways. And because his ways are not our ways, you act in ways that surprises us. It's a problem. We are prone to forget our finitude and our fallenness. Which raises the question, of course, doesn't it? How should we then, as followers of Jesus, relate to Jesus when we find ourselves in those situations in which we don't fully understand 
why God is doing certain things or is not doing certain things when he puzzles us. And maybe you're in that situation right now. There are things going on in your life. You just don't understand what God is up to. What is God doing with my child? What is God doing with my husband? What is God doing with me? You're puzzled. How are you responding to that? Well, this the sermon this morning is meant to help you answer that question. How you should respond when you feel puzzled by Jesus. And we're looking at this question not because I've decided to look at it, but because we're going through Luke verse by verse, aren't we? And we have come to Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to verse 51, which our brother Chidi read for us. This is actually a story about how the boy Jesus puzzled his mom and dad when they went to Jerusalem. Not just his mom and dad, but the teachers there. They were puzzled by Christ. They were astonished by him. This is a story about when God in Christ puzzles us. And there are three truths we learn from this passage, which are in your outline, that helps us answer the question, what should we do when Jesus puzzles us? Well, the first thing is, in your outline, just to recognize that sometimes Jesus puzzles us. We need to just take that in and recognize that. That's the first truth we learn here. Look with me at verse 41 there. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke starts this historical record in his usual style. What he first does is he sets out the context before he tells us what happens. Look at verse 41. Now his parents, that's the parents of Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Let's just stop there. It seems... From this entry that ever since Jesus was born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, have been going to Jerusalem. And I think it's, impo- it's clearly we should assume that when Jesus went along with them, why would they leave a child at home? I don't know why commentators seem to think Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the first time. Why? It's a normal family. They've been going up there and Jesus has been coming with them. That's a natural reading of the text. Jesus has been going there with them. In fact, what Luke is telling us is that Jesus is growing up in a godly family where the parents value gathering with the people of God in, in Jerusalem as God commanded. God commanded them to go up to three times, but over time it was difficult for people to get up there, so they only managed once. And that's a great thing that they did this every year. Jesus is being raised by a godly family. And as I think about this, Mary and Joseph here are setting a wonderful example for all parents here. This family did their spiritual life together. They went to church together. They worshipped God together. As parents, we need to resist the temptation of seeing our faith in God as our business alone. God expects you to do your life with him, with your children, as Mary and Joseph are doing. When you are coming to worship God on Sunday, make sure your children are here. As long as they are under your roof, they are your responsibility for God. And God will hold you accountable. When you come to worship God in the evening, don't say, oh, the children are resting now. This is evening. This is for mom and dad. The children can just sleep. Bring them here. Don't leave your kids behind. Don't say there's no Sunday school in the evening. Bring them along. 
Do your life with your family. If your spouse is struggling to come to church, encourage her to come to church. Don't force her. Be an example. This is what we're seeing here. Mary and Joseph, did they be Jesus unto Jerusalem? That's a challenge for us immediately, isn't it? So Jesus and his parents have arrived in Jerusalem from Nazareth. And Luke tells us now that Jesus is now 12 years old, isn't it? And that's a critical age. It's the age at which Jewish boys become adults. And like all Jewish boys, Jesus will go through a ritual. I can never quite say it's Hebrew name, but it's a ritual at the Passover that initiates him into manhood. Although it is possible Jesus actually has already gone through it at Nazareth. Usually it happened during Passover time, but I think it's possible. But by the time he comes, he's gone through that ritual and he's transitioned to another. He's now a man. Now, Luke does not tell us what then happens over the seven days of the Passover feast. What he does is he fast forwards to the end. The Passover has finished and everyone is now off home. If it was today, imagine all people, Jews have come from all over the world. They've descended onto Jerusalem, right? For seven days they've been there, worshipping God, remembering his deliverance. Now this great event now has come to an end, right? It's come to an end and everybody's going home. If it was today, it would be like the end of Glastonbury, right? You know, we would see the media packing up their gears. People are getting into their cars. The roads out of Jerusalem now are what? Chock-a-block with people. They are going this way, that way. Some are arranging their flights. It would be like that today, wouldn't it? And among this pile-up of people, right, is Mary and Joseph and their family and friends. They are also making their way out of Jerusalem, and they are in this human traffic on the road to Nazareth. Now, in ancient Israel, the pilgrims traveled in land caravans, right? Our people and, and their animals, they joined together in groups, and they did that for a very good reason. And they did that for protection and safety on the road. And we imagine that, in fact, we know that Mary and Joseph are in such a group, right? And if we are watching them on video as they leave Jerusalem, we can see a group of women first. They are ahead, right? That's how they usually traveled in this caravan. The women will be a bit further advanced than the men. And they'll be moving slowly, right? Snail space, as it were. It's a long journey, so you've got to walk slowly to get there. And so maybe they've traveled, we think, about maybe just under 18 miles. And they stop for the night. And they start getting ready to eat some food. Now, before they catch their sleep, right, they notice something. Mary and Joseph notice that they can't find their son. Jesus has gone missing. We have a lost boy. They don't know where he is, right? Uh, Luke says he has stayed behind in Jerusalem. Let's read verse 43 to 44. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they think he's in the group, they went a day's journey, that's how far they've traveled, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and we think that would have been at night time, that's when usually a land caravan stopped. So they are searching him among the relatives, they don't know where he is, but the search comes up empty. And of course, there's only one thing to do when you're searching for a child. You can find him, and it's nighttime. Well, you've got to wait first, 
Imagine the weight. Because, you know, that road itself, it can be quite dangerous. We know about the, the road to Jericho, don't we? And the bandits there, Jesus uses that later in the parable. And so we imagine they wait uh, for, for, the, for daylight. And then, of course, they get back on the road to Jerusalem to find him. Let's read on verse 45. And when they did not find him, that is with a land caravan, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, this is day two. He's gone missing on day one. Now it's day two. Mary and Joseph, we imagine on day two, with whatever help they have, they, you know, they're back in Jerusalem. Uh, we can imagine them knocking on doors, right? Frantically knocking on doors, asking for information. Have you seen a boy who looks like this, that talks like this, right? Have you seen him? And we can also imagine the false leads. There must be false leads. They must be told, he's there. And they go there to check, and he's not there. Sadly, a whole day passes without any success. They don't find Jesus. So it's now day three. And we imagine on day three, someone has a thought, what about the temple? Now we may be thinking, why didn't they think of that? Well, we don't know. Maybe initially they were staying with family and friends, so they started there. Right? What about the temple? Or maybe somebody has, has, has spotted Jesus at the temple and they get a tip. Anyway, we don't know, but they go there, right? Now, here's the thing you need to remember. The temple is massive. It covers 26 acres. Uh, its courtyards alone can hold over 250,000 people. And we should imagine there are pilgrims still there. So it's bound to be busy, isn't it? And as, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, this couldn't have been easy for them to make their way through the temple still. But by God's grace, Mary and Joseph find themselves in an area where the great teachers of Israel were known for holding public classes. Because in those days, the teachers taught outside. And it's most likely that the area they've come to is Solomon's portico, right? Which borders the court of the Gentiles. We can't be sure about these details, but they are there. And what they see then shocks them. Let's read on verse 46 to 47. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. As I've said, it was a custom of the teachers of Israel to sit in a public place in the temple and teach through discussion, a bit like we do a Bible study, to teach through discussion with anyone who wanted to learn God's words. It was what we might call today dialogical preaching, teaching through dialogue. And the young Jesus, 12 years old, is sitting there with them. It's not just sitting, it seems he has become center stage. Because Luke tells us he's listening to them, and we, we imagine with profound respect for these great teachers of Israel, but he's also asking them questions. And as he asks them questions, they ask him questions, and his spiritual answers, his spiritual knowledge has dumbfounded them. Verse 47 tells us, And all who hate him, because he's speaking, we're amazed at his understanding and his answers. Everyone listening to Jesus is completely stunned as they listen to this 12-year-old. Now, 
We should note in passing here that Jesus is not sitting with the teachers to put them in their place. That's not why he's there. He is there to learn from the Israel's great teachers. Jesus lives in a village in Nazareth. This is another great opportunity annually to sit under the greatest minds that Israel has ever produced. He's there to learn. Now, that surprises you, isn't it? Jesus is God, even as a 12-year-old, so why does he need to learn? But remember what we've been learning in Luke. Even though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. And he is living his life as a man. He's not living his life drawing on his divine privileges. He's living as a man, as Philippians 2 teaches us, as Brother Fred has been instructing us. Jesus is relying on God, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer and the gathered worship to grow his faith in God. Jesus grew in faith. So immediately we can see here just by the boy Jesus as a 12-year-old sitting, that Jesus values sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. That's important, isn't it? Jesus here is modeling for us how we are meant to grow in our life with God. How are you meant to grow in your life with God? Not by sitting alone. Not by you trying to teach yourself only. You do it by sitting under the teaching of God's word. At every opportunity as God uses his servants to get his word out to you. And notice, it is not only by listening to the word of God, but engaging with it. Having spiritual conversation out of it. On a Sunday morning, what that means is that we listen to the word, and immediately as we finish, we have spiritual conversations around the word. We can perhaps have a Q&A. No, no one ever demands that, but we, you could have a conversation. We've heard this truth. What does it mean? But among yourselves, talking about what you've heard, right? But more directly, I think, in terms of application, is Bible study. Yes, yes, that difficult day when we meet. Bible study. That's what's happening here. Jesus is there for Bible study. Because he's sitting, he's listening, he's asking, and he's answering questions. Isn't that what we do on Wednesday evening? Jesus is engaging with the Word. Can I ask you this morning, what about you? Do you value attending the Bible study in the church? Do you? Or could it be, that's a natural application, could it be that you think you're better than Jesus? If you're not kept from any physical or extreme situation, because there may be healthy reasons why you can't be here for Bible study. But if you can, could it be that you think you don't need it? Jesus needed Bible study. I don't need it. Could it be that you know Tulip and the five solas? <laughs> and now you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I know that. I know the solas. I know Tulip. I don't need to learn anything from Bible study now. Oh, friend, keep a close watch over your life, friend. Keep a close watch over your life. Because the question I have to ask you is this. Yes, you've grown in understanding of the word of God. Yes, you have. 
But it's grown new, it seems, in pride as well. So it can't be the word of God. If you are refusing to take every opportunity available to you in the church, you are asserting you are better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark it clearly in your personal Bible, friend. Jesus is God the Son. He knows all truth. And he's also the perfect man without any sin. And yet he is at the Bible study as a 12-year-old. And so I have to ask you this morning, why are you so bent on being different from the Savior who bled and died for your sins? Why would you choose a different path for growing to know him than the one Christ has already laid out? Is that not spiritual suicide, friend? Out of love, I just want to say, do not let the devil delude you to your own destruction. But you are too busy to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are too busy to sit under the preaching and the discussion of the word of God, you are too busy, friend. You are not on the path of becoming Christ-like. You are diverting from the path because this is how we become Christ-like, following the pattern Christ has laid out in Scripture, even as a 12-year-old. So this morning, repent of your pride. That's the reason. Repent of your pride. And your lack of healthy self-love for yourself. And that's the Lord Jesus to give you a fresh thirst to learn of him at every opportunity afforded in the life of the church. Do not be deluded in this. There's no other way to grow than using the means that God has ordained. No one can grow them by their own genius. We must follow the pattern of God if we're going to grow healthily. And I can also just say to young children here, to the young people here, look at the Lord Jesus in this passage. And parents, listen carefully to me. But particularly children here, the youth. Look at the Lord Jesus here. He is 12 years old. This is how a teenager is meant to be. Parents, this is how, how you are meant to raise children. Young people here, are you using every opportunity in this church to learn God's word? Yeah, youth is great, but we don't read here, Jesus only went to youth meeting. He's there with the great teachers. Parents, don't be deluded that the answer to your children is only sending them once a month to the youth meeting. You must encourage them to grow in the word. Blessed is that child who can say, I will Put sitting under the word of God above all else. Yes, the world may not think it matters. My parents may think that other world priorities are more important for me. But my heart's desire is to be more like Jesus. Blessed is that child who can say that. Because that's growing in being Christ-like. And parents, if you're not encouraging your children in this very thing, Friends, it doesn't matter what else you're doing them. You're robbing them of their future, their spiritual future. And you must weep and repent before God for the great injustice you're doing them. That's all in passing, isn't it? The main point here is that Jesus has puzzled the teachers. And they're not the only one with their mouths wide open. Look at this, what do you Come 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They're like, huh? Their mouths is wide open. Mary and Joseph are shocked to see that their beloved boy has not only been in the temple for the last 48 hours, he's in deep theological conversation. You know, I was thinking about this. It's a bit like this. Like one day you go to Sainsbury's, right? With your child, right? And you're just doing normal shopping. Then all of a sudden your child, maybe they've been on Duolingo, one of these gadgets, right? All of a sudden they're having chats in German, French with the cashiers. And you're like, huh? Right? You know your child is special, but this is a level up, right? That's what's a bit close what's happening here. Jesus has puzzled not only Israel's greatest teachers, but his own parents who know him so well. And, you know, friends, this is the first thing Luke wants Theophilus, who is writing this for, and us to learn. He wants Theophilus to grow in faith in God. Remember that? That's a, fair, that's a context for Luke. Always keeps coming back to those first four verses to understand what's going on in Luke. He wants him to grow, to be more certain about who Jesus is. What is the key to that? Well, the key to that is, first of all, is that we need to remember that Jesus will sometimes deal with us in ways we don't expect. Mary and Joseph needed to learn that. Theophilus, as a young Christian, needed to learn this to grow in trusting Jesus. And you, as a believer here this morning, you need to remember this. You know, we are sometimes puzzled at what God is up to in our lives. We read the word of God. We read this passage and that passage. What's going on in the Old Testament? What is all this Azazel business going on? What's, what's happening? Such things in the word of God, they puzzle us, don't they? Like, what's going on in Daniel? We are puzzled. What does God mean by this and that? That puzzles us. Sometimes we get what God is saying to us in the word of God, but we are shocked that God is commanding us to surrender to him in an area that feels so impossible. You know, you've been there. You're like, Lord, this is too hard. I don't understand why I have to submit here. And sometimes we know we have to submit and we get that, but we're just not sure what God is doing with us in general. What is God up to with my life? What is he doing? And you know, not knowing what God is doing and fully understanding what he's doing can make us feel alone, isn't it? We can even feel abandoned by Jesus. I don't know, maybe you are in that situation this morning. What is the Bible saying to you? Well, Luke is saying to you here, remember, it is normal to be puzzled by Jesus. To feel puzzled by God. It's normal. It is not a strange thing happening to you. That's the first thing Luke wants Theophilus and us to, to get. It is normal. We are fallen. Christ is holy. We are finite. It's infinite. Sometimes Jesus will puzzle us. It's normal. Now, of course, when I say that, you might be asking yourself, well, okay. <laughs> If what I'm going through is, is the norm, does that mean God does not care about it? Should I just take it on the chin? No. One of the reasons God has inspired Luke to include this event in this record of Jesus is to remind us that he cares. God knows that we find it distressing when we are confused about what is up to in our lives. He knows that. He knows it is distressing to us. And that is the second truth we learn in this passage. The first truth is that what? Sometimes Jesus puzzles us. 
And it matters, doesn't it? Because the second truth, being puzzled by Jesus, can distress us. It can distress us. Let's rejoin Luke. Luke says, as soon as the parents see the young Jesus with the teachers, they are stunned, aren't they? And we imagine as the shock fades, they go over to him or he goes over to them. We don't know. But we read this in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Oh, friends, we need to feel what Mary is saying here. To get underneath the text, as they say. She's saying to Jesus, your dad and I feel like on this occasion, you have acted without love and concern for us. That shocks us, doesn't it? Now, whatever we make of this complaint, as we shall see in a moment, it is completely misguided, we shall see. Luke doesn't want us to miss Mary's feelings. That's the point I'm getting at. You know, I once went to uh, collect my daughter Abigail at school when, before we started homeschooling her. I went there at the gate. I think she was in year three or something like that. Only <laughs> to find that she was missing. I've arrived, gone over to see the teacher. She's not here. She's already left. Huh? It seemed that the teacher had released her to come out without waiting for me to arrive. Clearly, what must have happened is, apparently she would have seen me, right? And, and she said, that's my dad. But I mean, somebody just looking at me, but kids usually know their dad, right? And, and, and then she, she's, she, off she was released out of the main gate. And, right? It took some searching. We started searching. <laughs> it was quite interesting now I think about it. But I can tell you the world stopped for me that. Literally stopped. And of course, half of me, I was like, what has happened? And the other half is, oh, I'm going to explain this to you. This. <laughs> oh, friends, I can tell you, never has a man prayed and worried at the same time. Right? <laughs> Which, of course, is not praying at all. But the Lord is gracious and we found her, right? He answers even our faithless prayers. But I digress. The point I'm making is that even us who have been in this situation, I can relate to what Mary must have been feeling just for a moment. But Abigail wasn't lost for three days, I mean, right? Most mothers here, um, yeah. We've seen our child in danger. I'm not really latest. To I've, seen, I've seen the child come out of the church and we've been really worried, like, they're going to get out there, right? We worry for our kids because we love them. And so all mothers here, especially, and dads, of course, can feel Mary's pain. Each moment that Jesus was lost must have felt like an eternity, isn't it? And that's what really Mary is trying to communicate here. When she says to Jesus, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The great distress, of course, has been not only him going missing, but has been compounded, I think, by disappointment now. After looking all over the city, they find him <laughs> looking very at home in the temple uh, with no worry at all. And I think it is immediately obvious to Mary that Jesus stayed behind on purpose. And that's why she said, why have you treated us? She can figure that out quickly. Moms do that, right? This is not a person who was told to stay behind. He decided to stay behind. 
And you can imagine the questions in our head now, right? Remember Jesus' origin. He's from God. Joseph is not the dad, right? And I think perhaps even Mary could be thinking, uh, does Jesus no longer care about me, the man? Has he got bigger things on his mind? Does he not care about his stepdad now? She must be thinking, is this it now? Okay, he's now 12, he's going to stay here, that's it. Is he coming back? Is he not coming back? She, 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 you could imagine the thought she's having. The point I'm trying to draw out is that Luke wants us to, we just read over that question. He wants us to take this seriously. And I think the point he's making is this. Sometimes Jesus will puzzle us, and this is a big deal. Because being puzzled by Jesus can be distressing to us. When the Lord Jesus doesn't act as we expect him in our lives, it can leave us feeling distressed and disappointed. We need to be honest about that. And sometimes I have seen people even backslide. Because God, for as far as they see it, God hasn't delivered what he advertised. Now, usually, of course, it's just that we, we have wrong expectations of him from the start. But the point is that distress is real. And that's what this passage here is reminding us, that Jesus knows we struggle with this. He's not blind to our struggles. He saw Mary's distress, and he sees your distress. When you feel distressed because you are puzzled by something Jesus is doing, or you feel deserted by God, remember, Luke is saying, Jesus cares about your distress. Remember that. Most importantly, God wants you to know that your failure to understand what Jesus is up to in your life is not intended to drive you away from God. No, it is meant to bring you closer to him. And this is the third and final truth we see here. The third and final truth is this. Truth number one, sometimes Jesus puzzles us, isn't it? Why is that a problem? Because being puzzled by Jesus can distress us. So why then does Jesus do it? <laughs> why does he allow me to be puzzled by him? Well, the answer Luke is driving at is the third truth. Jesus allows us to be puzzled to grow our knowledge of him. Jesus puzzles us to grow our knowledge of him. It's not pointless, it's for a purpose. And it is to grow our knowledge and love of him. We learn this truth from the answer Jesus gives Mary in verse 48 to 49. Look at verse 48 again. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And now does Jesus answer. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Right? That's the, que- that's the question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. What is Jesus saying? <laughs> you got to ponder and reflect on that, isn't it? Jesus is saying, look, I'm surprised you didn't know that I would be here at the temple. Why would you look all over the place when you knew, when you've seen my life, when you know that my heart moves for God? When you know where I have come from, when you have a visit from the angel, where else would I be apart from being in church? Where would I be except in my father's house? Surely, you of all people know, Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. And that's obvious, isn't it? Jesus is saying that. 
because he's revealing his divine nature here because he's reminding them of it because throughout the Bible, no one, not Moses, not Daniel, not Aaron, not Abraham, not Noah, not Adam, not even Enoch or Elijah ever referred to God as my father. Only Jesus is making clear he's a unique son of God. God is my father. And so he poses the question, surely you of all people know I am the son of God. God is my father. Yes, ma'am, I know that Papa Joseph is my stepdad, Jesus is saying to Mary. But you know that my true father is in heaven. I am now with these people here. Don't miss that. The play on words. Mary says, Father and I came. I've been looking for you. Jesus is like, oh, what in a minute. I am doing my father's work. I'm not pushing Joseph out. Just clarifying the relationship. He is the son of God. The response by Jesus to his parents in verse 48 to 49 is key to understanding why he decided to stay behind. It's not because this was only his second visit, as many erroneously suggest. You know, some people think that the boy Jesus was so entranced by the temple as a 12-year-old and, and that he overcome with emotions, you know, childish emotion, he couldn't help but stay behind. Or perhaps you're so involved in the discussion and just time passed, like when you're watching those Netflix box sets. They imagine it like that. Now, friend, that's wrong. As I said earlier, this is most likely his 12th visit to Jerusalem. And I think this is why Mary didn't expect him to go missing. Because he's always come home. He's always come home. He's always played with friends on those land caravans. And, and they know where he is. And the first time to stay on the night, he's there, right? Jesus stayed on purpose. I'm not just reading around the text. I'm reading from the text. How do I know that? We know that because of verse 43. Struck back there, verse 43. Read what he says. He says, and when the feast ended, was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That seems obvious, but what might not be clear to you is that the word for stayed behind there, in the original Greek language, the language the New Testament was written, is an intensive form of stay behind or remain. It means Jesus specifically and purposefully chose to stay behind. Why? Well, he did it because he, wants to, he wanted to grow Mary and Joseph's understanding of who he is. They already know Jesus is the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, right? But the, that belief needs to be strengthened because why? Because Jesus has been living as a human being for 12 years, not drawing on his divine privileges. They have, they have got used to him, forgetting 12 years is a long time. And so now, as he transitions into a man, as it were, not boy to a man, just to be clear, right? He's making it clear here. We are, sister, we are in that culture now. We are, pastors have to clarify everything. He's making it clear, isn't it? He's making it clear that he has come to do the Father's business, as the King James prefers to translate it. 
They need to know that. And the fact that they became distressed when Jesus went missing underlines the point. They need to grow in the spiritual knowledge of Jesus. So when Jesus says to Mary in verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be my father's house? He's saying, I, am, I puzzled you on purpose. Not to harm you, but because I love you. And I want you to know me more. I am not acting with thoughtless child emotions. I remain behind because I want to remind you that God is uniquely my father. And I'm here to do his will. Now, we should just quickly note before we move on, that by the age of 12, the human nature of Jesus is already aware that Jesus is God the Son. When did Jesus know? When did his human nature become aware that Jesus is God the Son? When did Jesus, the whole person, become fully aware that he's God the Son? The Bible doesn't tell us. It's a good case to make that he, he, he becomes aware of us as soon as he's aware as a human being. That's possible. We don't know, but, but we know that by the time he was 12, the Holy Spirit had passed on the knowledge from the divine nature of Jesus to his human nature. And so that Jesus, the whole person, now knew by the age of 12 that he was God. So Jesus has reminded his parents who he is, and to underline that, what humility? <laughs> to underline that he's not being disobedient. Notice what Jesus does. Notice what God does. As a 12-year-old, God follows his parents back to Nazareth. He still loves them. And he still wants to be with them until the appointed time. And so we read in verse 50 to 51. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them. And came to Nazareth. What humility. He's not going off to do his own thing. Even though he's God. He's going with his parents. And was submissive to them. Obedient. Look, he's reminding that he wasn't being disobedient. He was being obedient. And his mother then treasured up all these things in her heart. Let's move on quickly. The point we see here that Jesus' self-disclosure has not led his parents to grow in knowing him. But... All is not lost because we are told there Mary has treasured all these things in her heart. And praise the Lord she did because we have the gospel. <laughs> Mary is reminding us exactly what happened because she treasured and pondered over the word of God. And all the events that she saw. The point is that the parents' failure though at the time to understand what Jesus did and said about himself on this visit to Jerusalem is a central point of this passage. Because when Luke is teaching Theophilus and us, he says, life with Jesus is not always predictable. Sometimes Jesus will lead you in a way that puzzles you like Mary and Joseph, Leah, experienced. There will be a time when you're asking yourself, why has God allowed us to go through this situation? Where is Jesus when we need him? Why is Jesus allowing me to suffer in this way? Why now? Why not last year? Why not 10 years ago when I was younger? We get puzzled, don't we? We get puzzled. And sometimes it distresses us. So distressful, maybe start doubting Jesus. And even being angry with him. Or frustrated with him. Does Jesus mean well for me? Am I still the apple of his eye, as the Bible says? What's the cure for your doubts? 
for it is to remember that Jesus allows us to be puzzled, says Luke, because he loves us. Because he wants you to grow in knowing him more. And we don't always appreciate this. Luke is reminding us here, isn't it? And that's understandable. Even his mom and stepdad struggled to appreciate it. Despite all the explanation Jesus gives in verse 49, verse 50 says they still didn't get it. To take a while for them to get it. Right? Mary, in fact, only fully gets it after the resurrection. We think by then Joseph had already gone to glory. But here's the point. Us not getting it doesn't change the truth. That's the point Luke is getting at. Jesus puzzles us to grow our spiritual knowledge of him. This is the key truth we need to understand. This is the, what verse 41 to 51 is teaching us. Jesus puzzles us to grow our knowledge of him. To grow us in our love of him. So now we know that. right? Now, you, now you're reminded of that. I'm sure you knew it already. Jesus puzzles us to grow our spiritual knowledge of him. How do we grow to trust Jesus then when we feel puzzled by him? We need to trust him. That's what Luke is getting us. How do we do it? Well, we must follow the example of Mary by doing two things. Let me just give you these two things, then I will end. Two things we must do. Learning from Mary. First, when we feel puzzled by Jesus, we must take our hurts and pains and frustration to the Lord Jesus. When Mary felt frustrated with Jesus, she did not bottle it up. She came to her son and led the issue before him. And Jesus didn't rebuke her for doing that. He simply clarified what he was doing. Verse 48. Look at Mary again there. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great Distress. Now, we must be careful here as we learn from Mary. Mary is expressing her to Jesus. And as we heard her, and as we hear her again, it's jarring to us, isn't it? It's like, oh, wow. That's quite accusatory. But don't forget the context. This is a godly mom speaking to her godly teenage son. Always read the Bible in context, right? Though she is blaming Jesus for the situation... She's not blaming him as God the Son. She's speaking as a mom looking for answers from her son. This is something that any of us here who are parents would say. Our language is perfectly appropriate for Mary, but it's not for us. That's the point I'm trying to get at. We need to read our Bibles properly. Be careful how you lift things from the Word of God. It's appropriate this for Mary. As a mom to a son, it's not appropriate for you in one degree. You're not Mary. When we speak to Jesus, we speak to him only as our God. So we can learn from Mary. What do we learn from Mary? We need to take our pains and frustration to Jesus. And we need to do it honestly so we learn that. Yeah? David does that. Job did that. And we can think of other examples in the Bible. Yeah? So all of this is in line with the word of God. We should do that honestly or candidly as I say. But we need to do it reverently. We are approaching our God, not our teenage son, not our child. Jesus is not your baby. He is God. And so I ask you this morning, are there any issues burdening you right now? Where are you genuinely thinking, Lord, what is going on here? Where are you? 
I am lost here. Well, the answer is from Mary. Take your pain to Jesus. He is your Savior. And you know he has put on your human skin to bleed and die for your sins. So that you can have new life with him forever. If you have repented and trusted in Jesus, he loves you. And he wants you to pour out your heart to him. He's your prophet, priest, and king. He's your man, as I said last week. So go to him. The second thing we need to do is to learn from Mary to keep on treasuring the person, words, and actions of Jesus. So we pour out our thoughts, our frustration, our pains to Jesus. But let us go on to treasure Jesus. To keep, him, keep our Lord close to our heart. That's what Mary does. She treasured all these things. She treasured Christ. Are you feeling puzzled? Is God doing something in your life you don't get? Join the queue, as they say. Well, let your situation escort you into a study of who Jesus is. Let it draw you closer to the cross. Let it grow your love of him. Oh, friends, isn't that the aim of all true believers? Is your goal in life not to one day look in the beautiful and glorious face of our Prince of Peace, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords? Is Jesus not the goal of your life? Are you not living to see him whose face is brighter than the sun? Whose beauty is, 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 is greater than all the worlds, known and unknown, put together. Isn't that what you are living for? Are you not living to worship at the feet of whom who bled and died for you? Not only died, but rose from death. Who is coming in glory to take you in the new heavens and earth. Is that not what you are living for? Well, if the answer is yes... Well, first of all, the answer is yes if you are converted. If you know Jesus, the answer is yes. And because it is yes, well, then let whatever is puzzling you lead you to Jesus, to trust him more. Let it plunge you deeper into his loving arms. Sometimes Jesus puzzles us, and we must remember it is normal. But does it matter? Yes, because being puzzled by Jesus can distress us. Let us remember that Jesus then cares about our distress. So why does he do it? Well, Jesus, that's the third point. Jesus grows us. Jesus puzzles us to grow our knowledge of him. What do we do? Well, let's take our pain and frustration to Jesus. And let us keep treasuring him in all situations. Amen.